Welcome to Reading Marx's Capital with David Harvey. This course consists of a close reading of Karl Marx's Capital, Volume 1, by CUNY Graduate Center Distinguished Professor David Harvey. The course was recorded at the People's Forum in 2019. The People's Forum is a movement incubator for working class and marginalized communities and an accessible educational and cultural space in New York City. The page numbers Professor Harvey refers to are valid for both the Penguin Classics and Vintage Books editions of Capital. Course materials are available at peoplesforum.org slash capital David Harvey. This episode is Class 4, Chapter 4, The General Formula for Capital, Chapter 5, Contradictions in the General Formula, and Chapter 6, The Sale and Purchase of Labor Power. This was recorded live. Please be mindful there will be some changes in volume. One of the things that uh, I hope uh, I can get you to appreciate about uh, Marx's manner of presentation is the way in which he flows the argument from one chapter to another so that you are sort of continually drawn along uh, into the nature of the argument he is making. So uh, the chapter on money uh, as we saw last time, is a rather complicated uh, chapter and uh, hard to get through. But uh, towards the end of it, Marx sets up uh, some crucial steps which actually take us into uh, the following chapters. And these crucial steps really come when he's talking about the uses of money as a means of payment. And this arises because the different commodities that go into making other commodities arrive on a different temporality. Uh, the cotton factory requires a certain amount of cotton uh, every day. The cotton harvest only comes in once a year. So how do you have exchange relations between the cotton uh, maker, the cotton producers, and uh, the cotton uh, users, uh, and again, many other complicated things like that. He mentions uh, uh, certain kinds of commodities even for sale uh, in, to the final consumer, like a house. Uh, and, and of course, uh, in production, we have to buy the factory and, and the machinery and all those kinds of things. Uh, this leads then to uh, the way in which money starts to be used uh, not in actual kind of relationship to the, the physical movement, but according to some other rhythm. And this other rhythm is punctuated by uh, the emergence of these new roles uh, of creditor and debtor. And the creditor and the debtor uh, then enter in as being part and parcel of what has to happen in order for a society engaged in complicated social divisions of labor, how all of this can be coordinated. And this leads him on page 234 to make the following uh, point that given the role of creditor and debtor, uh, 
the creditor is going to sort of lend money, the debtor is going to owe it. Uh, this leads into uh, what he says on 234, the value form of the commodity, money, has now become the self-sufficient purpose of the sale, owing to a social necessity springing from the conditions of the process of circulation itself. That is, the, the conditions of divisions of labor and circulation of money and circulation of commodities uh, lead to a situation in which somebody is going to start to say they're going to use money uh, as uh, an, uh, both a beginning point and an end point and switch from the CMC circuit, the commodity money circuit, where money is a mediator between the use values uh, to another form of circulation in which money, commodity, money, and the end point of the sale is, is, is to get the money. Uh, now this leads into certain contradictions which he then talks about uh, and in world money he also starts to point out that hoarding uh, starts to have a very important uh, role to play uh, because you need to hoard money in order to save to buy the machine or uh, you know, buy the cotton or whatever uh, and uh, this hoarding then becomes uh, a significant element. Uh, now, hoarding is something which is not good, but at a certain point becomes necessary, and that therefore, uh, as he puts it, uh, the functions of hoards, and this is on 243, therefore arise in part out of the function of money as a medium of payment and circulation internally, and in part out of its function as a world currency. And world money serves as a universal means of payment and universal form of uh, a universal uh, uh, expression of, 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 of wealth. Uh, and he ends the, the, the chapter with the following commentary. Countries with developed bourgeois production limit the hoards concentrated in the strong rooms of the banks to the minimum required for the performance of their specific functions. Whenever these hordes are strikingly above their average level, this is with some exceptions an indication of stagnation in the circulation of commodities. So that hoarding becomes part of the system, but hoarding is of course a form of accumulation. But it's an accumulation of money capital and an accumulation of money power. And this brings him to part two uh, of capital, which is the transformation of money uh, into, into capital. Now, the three chapters have a very simple structure, and I don't think it's too hard to follow what the nature of the argument is. First, we consider the general formula for capital, which is going to be MCM, in which Marx then points about there's no point in starting with a certain amount of money and ending the day with the same amount of money, that the only reason why you would get into the MCM circuit is to have more of the M at the end than you started out with. So the, the, that leads to the general uh, formula for capital. Uh, chapter 5 is then about the contradictions of that. And the contradiction is, is uh, a simple one, which is that if MCM is going to become MC 
m plus delta m, then the question is where does the more come from, this delta m, the surplus value, where does it come from, in a society where the exchange relation is supposed to be based on equality. And how is that contradiction resolved? That is going to be resolved uh, in chapter 6 by the finding a commodity which has the capacity to produce more value than it itself has, and that commodity is labor power. So the three chapters are kind of a fairly simple exposition of that general argument, but as is always the case with Marx, it's surrounded with a, a bunch of very interesting observations which we need uh, to take, uh, take rather seriously. Um, and at the opening of chapter four, he goes into a slight historical mode. Now, right throughout chapter, the, right throughout capital, there is this whole sort of issue. Is, is he talking about a history or is he talking about a logic? My argument is that by and large he's talking about a logic, but that doesn't stop him from occasionally taking little excursions into history. And he starts chapter four with a little historical point that historically speaking, he says, capital invariably first confronts landed property in the form of money, in the form of monetary wealth, merchants' capital, and usurers' capital. Uh, so that means that there's a commodity market and a labor market and a money market, so that all of those are monetized, and money has to be, however, then transformed into capital by definite processes. Important point here. Not all money is capital. Capital is some money used in a certain way. And I think that is therefore the use of the money that defines capital rather than the existence of money. So you don't get into the idea that all money is capital. It's not. And Marx is going to try and give us the idea of, of exactly uh, what goes on uh, when you start to take some of that money uh, and use it as uh, in the form of capital. So the first few pages then, up to about page 250, are taken up with that discussion. And he wants to make sure that we understand what he, oh, what he says on 250, a palpable difference between the circulation of money as capital and its circulation as mere money. Now you need money to circulate in order to circulate commodities. So even if there's no capital, money is going to circulate, and it's going to circulate in a different kind of way than it does uh, as capital. Um, and this then leads him uh, to start to look more closely at, uh, so on 251, the process MCM does therefore does not therefore owe its content to any qualitative difference between its extremes, for they are both money. So the only interest here is solely in its quantitative changes. More money is finally withdrawn from circulation than was thrown into it at the beginning. 
The cotton originally bought for £100 is, for example, resold at £100 plus £10, i.e. £110. The complete form of this process is therefore MC to M prime, where M prime equals M plus delta M, i.e. the original sum advanced plus an increment. This increment or excess over the original value I call surplus value. So surplus value is a key concept throughout capital, and it is the one which Marx works with uh, most uh, explicitly. And it is, of course, uh, the concept which is going to be a, a driving concept uh, throughout the, the whole of the three volumes of capital. But surplus value is simply the surplus that comes out of the MCM uh, movement. So, as he goes on to say, the value originally advanced, therefore, not only remains intact while in circulation, but increases its magnitude, adds to itself a surplus value, or is valorized. Now again, this concept of valorization is important to Marx, uh, and it is one that he will come back to. And valorization of capital is simply about the, the, tra the, the way in which the, the movement which occurs converts it into capital. So on 253, he then kind of says, the simple circulation of commodities, selling in order to buy, is a means to a final goal which lies outside circulation, namely the appropriation of use val values, the satisfaction of needs. The exchange of use values, I get the use value I want, you get the use value you want. As against this, the circulation of money as capital is an end in itself, for the valorization of value takes place only within this constantly renewed movement. The movement of capital is therefore limitless. Notice, limitless. And this is, I think, going to be one of the points that one has to make about the history of capital. It's always been about accumulation. It always seems to find a way to engage in limitless expansion. And therefore, we live in a world where there is growth. If there is no growth, capital is in problem, is in trouble. So capital is going to be a growth society. But here is Marx actually saying, this form of circulation, M to M plus delta M, is going to go on forever and it is going to expand because the delta M will be reincorporated and then you'll get another round of expansion. And actually, historically, what you see is the rate of growth of capital has been somewhere just below 3% per annum compound rate uh, since the 1780s onwards. And the limitlessness of this is therefore one of the problems we have to confront. Uh, to this day. So the movement of capital is limitless, but we then come on 254, where Marx says, as the conscious bearer of this movement, the possessor of money becomes a capitalist. Now again, I've made the comment that Marx is dealing with roles, not with persons. And so he's defining the role of a capitalist. And the role of the capitalist is to become a possessor of money who uses that money to make more money. 
Uh, and then says, the objective content of the circulation we have been discussing, the valorization of value, is its subjective purpose. It is only insofar as the appropriation of ever more wealth in the abstract is the sole driving force behind his operations that he functions as a capitalist, as capital personified and endowed with consciousness and a will. Now, this means that the person of the capitalist has to behave in a certain way. The capitalist does not have a choice. Once you're in the role, you have to play the game according to the rules. And this means that the capitalist's aim is the unceasing movement of profit-making. This boundless drive for enrichment, this passionate chase after value, is common to the capitalist and the miser. But while the miser is merely a capitalist gone mad, the capitalist is a rational miser. The ceaseless augmentation of value, which the miser seeks to attain by saving his money from circulation, is achieved by the more acute capitalist by means of throwing his money again and again into circulation. I always like this passage, it always reminds me of uh, the Balzac novel, uh, Eugenie Grande, where the, there's the guy and he's got his money and he's holding on, he's got his money hoarded uh, and, and hangs on to But right at the end of the novel, yeah, he's riding into town with the gold he's taken from wherever he's hiding it. And what he's going to do is he's going to put it into circulation and invest it uh, in uh, uh, government bonds and, and therefore turn it uh, into, into capital. So the relationship between miser and capitalist is of, is of that sort. And this then takes Marx a little bit further. On the next page, 255, he says, on the other hand, in the circulation MCM, both the money and the commodity function only as different modes of existence of value itself. The money as its general mode of existence, the commodity as its particular, or so to speak, disguised mode. It is constantly changing from one form into the other without becoming lost in this movement. It thus becomes transformed into an automatic subject that is self-replicating on its own account. If we pin down the specific forms of appearance assumed in turn by self-valorizing value in the course of its life, we reach the following elucidation. Capital is money. Capital is commodities. In truth, however, this is a very crucial passage. In truth, however, value is here the subject of a process in which, while constantly assuming the form in turn of money and commodities, it changes its own magnitude, throws off surplus value from itself, considered as original value, and thus valorizes itself independently. For the movement in the course of which it adds surplus value is its own movement. Its valorization is therefore self-valorization. By virtue of being value, it has acquired the occult ability to add value to itself. It brings, it brings forth living offspring, or at least lays golden eggs. And Marx is being a little bit ironic here, and his style of argument is to say, this is how it appears. 
It appears as if it's self-valorizing itself. It appears as if it is a goose laying, laying golden eggs. And he then goes on, as the dominant subject of this process, in which it alternately assumes and loses the form of money and the form of commodities, but preserves and expands itself through all these changes, value requires above all an independent form by means of which its identity with itself may be asserted. Only in the shape of money does it possess this form. That is, you only know whether you've really expanded when you get to the money. In the commodity form, you can't tell. It's hidden. It then becomes open when it goes into the money form. Only in the shape of money does it possess this form. Money therefore forms the starting point and the conclusion of every valorization process. There is here no antagonism, as in the case of hoarding, between the money and commodities. The capitalist knows that all commodities, however tattered they may look, or however badly they may smell, are in faith and in truth money, are by nature circumcised Jews, and what is more, a wonderful means for making still more money out of money. Now, there is a considerable debate about uh, the degree to which Marx engaged in anti-Semitism. He, he came from a Jewish background. His father converted into Protestantism because he was employed by the state and it was a condition of state employment that you be a Protestant. But Marx came from the Jewish background. But there are several times when he makes these commentaries where people kind of say he's playing the role of a self-hating Jew and he's being anti-Semitic uh, in some way. Uh, the rival interpretation, and I leave you to make your own mind up about this, is that in a sense what he's saying that living in a society where all of this opprobrium was, was heaped upon the Jews for who they were, that in fact he's saying, well, all those rude things you say about Jews and all those nasty things you should say about the capitalist. So it's not anti-Semitic so much as taking the anti-Semitic trope and, and, and displacing it from the Jew to the capitalist. And say so the persona of the capitalist is in fact all of those things you say about the Jews. Now, those are two, you can make up your own mind, uh, which one which one you go for. Uh, but there are several remarks and several points in Capital where you will get something of this kind. And after all, he was living in an age, if you uh, are familiar with uh, Charles Dickens and Oliver Twist and the figure of Fagan, uh, and of course, then you go back to Shakespeare and Merchant of Venice and all the rest of it, we, you know, there's, there's a long, long history. But you're also dealing with a history which is in itself very interesting. See, the Catholic Church was antagonistic to interest in exactly the same way Islam is today. And, and it was only in the late 19th century that the Catholic Church gave up its opposition to banking based upon interest. So to be a, a true Catholic meant that you couldn't be 
a kind of banker, which meant that the bankers in Second Empire Paris, for example, were the Rothschilds and the Pereres. They were different families, but they were both came from uh, Jewish background. So that there was a world uh, in which capital, particularly banking capital, was typically uh, dominated uh, by, by Jewish uh, merchants, in part because of the, uh, the prescription within the Catholic faith, in particular, of charging interest. So, at the end of this chapter, then, we get the following resolution. Value, therefore, this is on 256, now becomes value in process, money in process, and as such, capital. Critical definition. Capital is value in motion. Capital is not a thing. Because value is not a thing. It's value that is in motion, not a thing. Now, this distinguishes Marx, of course, from all other economic forms of thought. Because conventional economics, capital is a factor of production. It's a stock of assets of some kind, or it can be money of some kind. Actually, there's a lot of controversy within the history of bourgeois economics as to exactly what capital is and how to define it and how to measure it. But the one thing that is true of all of the interpretations there is that it is always a thing, a factor of production. For Marx, it is not a thing. It is value. And remember, value is immaterial. Not a jot of materiality enters into the concept of value, as you will recall. So capital is value in motion. It comes out of circulation, enters into it again, preserves and multiplies itself within circulation, emerges from it with an increased size, and starts the same cycle again and again. Money which begets money, such is the description of capital given by its first interpreters, the mercantilists. And then he talks about merchants' capital and interest-bearing capital, which are forms of circulation of capital. Different forms from the one which Marx is going to analyze, which is industrial capital. Interest-bearing capital, merchants' capital circulate, but they are also a form of capital which is about value in motion. Now, this is <coughs> very, very important because... If there is no motion, there is no capital. What happens in a crisis? The motion stops. And when the motion stops, capital is devalued. Value disappears. When the crisis is resolved, capital can be put back into motion again and what disappeared can be resurrected. So you've always got to understand its value in motion. And the value in motion is not constant. It's not easily measurable. 
And again, this, of course, is what makes Marx so frustrating for conventional economics, because conventional economics basically says if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. Which is why it says basically Marx's theory doesn't exist and won't have anything to do with it and won't take any notice of it. But Marx is saying no. We're looking at value in motion. And the motion becomes critical. And that diagram that I gave you the very first day, maybe, yeah, this one, is about the motion. And we're beginning to look at the motion through this diagram. And we're looking at the first bottom link. Money becomes capital. And then money is going to be used to buy commodities. So we're looking at the first link in this motion. And the three volumes, of course, are going to be about the totality of the motion. And you can only understand what Marx is doing by recognizing that he's, he's a theorist of process. He's a theorist of motion. And this motion has objective consequences. Because remember the definition of value. Value is immaterial, but has objective consequences. Immaterial, but objective. But now we're saying value is not value unless it's in motion. And I always think it's kind of interesting to have lived through the, some of those moments in the history of capitalism when the motion stopped. After 9-11, very interesting, the motion stopped. And then what happened? You know, about two days afterwards, Giuliani and then Bush came out and said, for God's sake, get out your credit cards and start shopping. Because the motion had stopped. People did not buy anything for about two or three days, and the whole system was kind of... Suddenly they realized they were going to get into a huge crisis unless everybody go back, you know. So, so, the, so, so the stopping of something and the motion. And, then, and therefore there's then the question of the motion and how fast the motion is, and we'll get into that as time goes on. And the speed then becomes significant. Marx actually makes a point later on when he kind of says, a crisis occurs not because commodities have not been sold, but because they have not been sold in time. So one of the questions about this circulation process is, how fast is it going to go? And actually... Of course, the whole history of capital has been about a history of speed-up. This system is going faster and faster. And then when you ask about the, the strategies of technological change under the history of capital, what are those histories about? They're about speed-up or overcoming spatial barriers. Just think of the speed-up that has gone on in monetary transactions on Wall Street since 1980s. And now it's all computerized trading, and you need faster computers. And actually, what's really interesting, all of the computer trading is out in New Jersey somewhere or other. 
And the distance, which you would think is infinitesimal, is so important that a lot of the real fast traders put their computers out right next to New Jersey because they can get into the market just a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a nanosecond before anybody else. And if you can do that, you can see somebody has made a trade, and before it's completed, you can do a counter trade. And that's where people make their money. So the motion is always, is always foundational. MCM prime, he concludes of this chapter, is in fact, therefore, the general formula for capital in the form in which it appears directly in the sphere of circulation. This then leads him into chapter 5, which is the contradictions in the general formula. And the contradiction is quite, quite simple, so we don't have to spend too much time about it which is that the exchange of use values, you can exchange equivalent for equivalent and everybody's happy. When, when you get to the other form of circulation, that is the MCM, you're not going to be happy if you get equivalent at the end. Now, throughout these pages of 260, 261, Marx really poses the kind of question is, can you get, can you get surplus value out of exchange in the market? And the answer is there are forms of market exchange that appear to make it's possible for one person to gain at another person's expense. Robbing Peter to pay Paul. But Marx goes through those and basically says, well, but this doesn't expand the system. All it does is to redistribute value from one to another and then one person gains and then the other person gains it back again. So there's no aggregate expansion. So what this then leads Marx to do is to say, okay, I'm going to recognize that these particularly forms of market exchange uh, can do this. And, and merchants, for example, can buy cheap and sell dear and, and all the rest of it. But what I am going to look at is the case of pure market exchange. And I think here too, you've got to start to think about how Marx's categories are working. On 262, he says, if commodities or commodities and money of equal exchange value and consequently equivalents are exchanged, it is plain that no one abstracts more value from circulation than he throws into it. The formation of surplus value does not take place. In its pure form, and let's think about this pure form, the circulation process necessitates the exchange of equivalents. But in reality, processes do not take place in their pure form. Let us, therefore, assume an exchange of non-equivalents, and it then goes on. But notice 
He's introduced this idea of in its pure form. And actually then what happens is that Marx kind of says, let's look at a market system, which is based on, uh, in, in its pure form, perfect competition, perfect market. And having gone through uh, these business, uh, uh, the various forms in which you can rob Peter to pay Paul, he then kind of says, however much we twist and turn, the final conclusion remains the same. If equivalents are exchanged, no surplus value results. And if non-equivalents are exchanged, we still have no surplus value. Circulation, or the exchange of commodities, creates no value. No value can be created in the market. Absolutely not. That is, again, a, a, a very important proposition for Marx, and it will hold throughout the whole of capital. It can be understood, therefore, he says, why in our analysis of the primary form of capital, the form in which it determines the economic organization of modern society, we have entirely left out of consideration its well-known and, so to speak, antediluvian forms, merchant's capital and usurer's capital. Because those were two forms of capital in which a certain class was able to extract value to its own benefit. The merchant class could rob the world of values, buy cheap and sell dear, and amass great fortunes. The bankers could do the same, and those were important historical forms of capital. Uh, and uh, Marx quotes Franklin uh, on 267, war is robbery, commerce is cheating, and merchant's capital and user's capital uh, were two forms of capital. And he then says, again, in the course of our investigation, we shall find that both merchant's capital and interest-bearing capital are derivative forms. And at the same time, it will become clear why, historically, these two forms appear before the modern primary form of capital. Again, this is a, an important argument that Marx is, 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 is going to be making. Merchant's capital and interest-bearing capital, or banking capital, financial capital, all existed before the industrial form of capital, which we're going to look for in this diagram. They all existed before. The interesting question is how, interest, how industrial capital takes those pre-existing forms of capital and disciplines them to become forms of capital which serve the interest of industrial capital. You need interest-bearing capital in order to circulate fixed capital and all the rest of it. But that means that interest-bearing capital cannot be usury. And here's an interesting kind of way to look at it. Usury is, if you like, the early form, the non-capitalist form 
of lending money and, and all the rest of it. There's a difference between usury and interest. Interest is the legitimate charging of interest to facilitate the circulation of interest bearing, uh, uh, circulation of industrial capital. And in our society, we have anti usury laws. But we don't have anti interest laws. And the distinction between interest and usury is a distinction between that form of finance capital, which actually has been disciplined to the requirements of industrial circulation of industrial capital and that form which was undisciplined and preceded the rise of industrial capital. So he then goes on to say, we have shown that surplus value cannot arise from circulation and therefore that for it to be formed, something must take place in the background which is not visible in the circulation itself. C capital, this is the bottom of 268, cannot arise from circulation, and it is equally impossible for it to arise apart from circulation. It must have its origin both in circulation and, and not in circulation. We therefore have a double result. The transformation of money into capital has to be developed on the basis of the imminent laws of exchange of commodities in such a way that the starting point is the exchange of equivalents, that is, the pure form of market exchange. The money owner, who is as yet only a capitalist in larval form, must buy his commodities at their value, sell them at their value, and yet at the end of the process, withdraw more value from circulation than he threw into it at the beginning. His emergence as a butterfly must and yet must not take place in the sphere of circulation. These are the conditions of the problem. Hic rodus, hic salta. Marx always liked to play games. You end the chapter with a question. How are you going to resolve this contradiction? And this takes us straight into the next chapter, the sale and purchase of labor power. In order to extract value, he says on the first page, out of the consumption of a commodity, our friend the money owner must be lucky enough to find within the sphere of circulation on the market a commodity whose use value possesses the peculiar property of being a source of value, whose actual consumption is therefore itself an objectification of labor, hence a creation of value. The possessor of money does find such a special commodity on the market, the capacity for labor, in other words, labor power. And then he goes on to define what he means by labor power. The, it's the aggregate of those mental and physical capabilities existing in the physical form, the living personality of a human being, capabilities which he sets in motion whenever he produces a use value of any kind. But in order that the owner of money may find labor power on the market as a commodity, various conditions must first be fulfilled. And then he goes on to talk about these. That labor power must appear on the market as a commodity. 
But this is true, he says, only insofar as its possessor, the individual whose labor power it is, offers it for sale or sells it as a commodity. In order that its possessor may sell it as a commodity, he must have at his disposal, he must be the free proprietor of his own labor capacity and of his person. He and the owner of money meet in the market and enter into relations with each other on a footing of equality as owners of commodities, with the sole difference that one is a buyer, the other a seller. Both are therefore equal in the eyes of the law. The law comes into here uh, step by step. He must constantly treat his labor power as his own property, his own commodity, and he can do this only by placing it at the disposal of the buyer, handing it over to the buyer for him to consume for a different period of time, temporarily. In this way, he manages both to alienate his labor power and to avoid renouncing his rights of ownership over it. That is, the laborer retains rights over the labor power all the time. The second essential condition, which allows the money the owner of money to find labor power in the market, is this. The possessor of labor power, instead of being able to sell commodities in which his labor has been objectified, must be compelled to offer for sale as a commodity that very labor power which exists only in his living body. For the transformation of money, and this is bottom of 272, into capital, therefore, the owner of money must find the free worker available on the commodity market, and this worker must be free in the double sense. That as a free individual, he can dispose of his labor power as his own commodity. And that, on the other hand, he has no other commodity for sale. He is rid of them. He is free of all the objects needed for the realization of his labor power. Why this free worker confronts him, that is the capitalist, in the sphere of circulation is a question which does not interest the owner of money. One thing, however, is clear. Nature does not produce, on the one hand, owners of money or commodities, and on the other hand, men possessing nothing but their own labor power. This relation has no basis in natural history, nor does it have a social basis common to all periods of human history. It is clearly the result of past historical development, product of many economic revolutions, of the extinction of a whole series of older formations of social production. I find this a very interesting kind of note. You know, one of the tropes which is extremely important in terms of, for instance, uh, the US approach to, for instance, the invasion of Iraq was that they're going to deliver freedom and that therefore this was an exercise in the extension of freedom. And the freedom which they were proposing to deliver to Iraq was uh, a neoliberal structure uh, of labor regulation, uh, labor law, and of a market society, and rule of law. And, and of course, the neoliberal argument, if you go and read Hayek and, and Friedman and all the rest of it, is freedom is, and the freedom of the individual is the high point. 
of any civil, civilized society. Therefore, individual liberty and freedom is the big uh, aim and objective uh, to which human society should strive. And this is the position of Hayek and Friedman. They then argue that the best chance of creating that individual liberty and freedom and creating that world is a society founded on private property, the rule of law, free markets, and free trade. And then you find a following argument. If you argue against private property, the rule of law, free markets and free trade, you are held to be arguing against individual liberty and freedom. And this is the neoliberal line. And anybody who critiques private property, rule of law, free markets and free trade, is in effect somebody who is acting as a barrier to the achievement of that supreme human society of individual liberty and freedom. Marx has an interesting kind of comment about this, that there are two forms of freedom. There is the freedom to sell your labor power to whoever you want, but you've also been freed of any control over the means of production as a laborer, and therefore you have only one way in which you can actually realize your liberty, which is by being a wage laborer. So I remember when George Bush was going on and on and on about how they were bringing freedom to Iraq, I always thought, well, okay, yeah, that's what they're doing. They're bringing what Marx is talking about. <laughs> exactly. But Marx is going to say this is no kind of freedom. And I think this double character of the freedom that Marx is talking about here is interesting to reflect upon. Now, Marx then goes on to say the economic categories already discussed similarly bear a historical imprint. Definite historical conditions are evolved in the existence of the product as a commodity. In order to become a commodity, a, the product must cease to be produced as the immediate means of subsistence of the producer himself. Had we gone further and inquired into what circumstances, or, or even the majority of products take the form of commodities, we should have found this only happens on the basis of one particular mode of production, the capitalist one. Now, this is then followed by some discussions about where he says that not all market societies are capitalist ones. It's possible to have a market society that is not capitalist. Uh, the historical conditions of its existence uh, of capitalism are by no means given with the mere circulation of money and commodities. It arises only when the owner of the means of production and subsistence finds the free worker available on the market as a seller of his own labor power. And this one historical precondition comprises a world's history. Capital, therefore, announces from the outset a new epoch in the process of social production.
couple of things I want to points I want to make uh, about this. In a capitalist mode of a capitalist mode of production is the only mode of production where commodity exchange is the basis of all social and economic life. If that is the case, then it turns out that value, in the way that Marx has been talking about it, only exists in a capitalist mode of production. And this, I think, is an, an important point. Because when Marx set up the argument about formation of value, he began with relative and equivalent forms of value, and then said these begin to get together when we start to talk the expanded form of value, the general form of value, the representation of value in money form. It's only when exchange becomes a normal social act, he says, that value starts to appear as the regulator of rela social relations between individuals through the material exchange of things, given the fetishism argument. So he's been building an argument in which value only is consolidated in a situation where commodity exchange becomes a normal social act and the aim and objective of economic activity is commodity production. That is a capitalist society. Therefore, the value that Marx is talking about is unique and particular to a capitalist mode of production. I want to make this point because there has historically been, in many instances, the, an idea that value, because it is social, socially necessary, labor time, and because it's about labor time and it's about labor, is something that should be at the heart of socialism. Whereas, the if the thrust of Marx's argument here is that value is embedded in a capitalist mode of production, then in order to arrive at a socialist mode of production, you have to overthrow the value theory which regulates relations within a capitalist mode of production. If, as happened in Soviet planning practices, for example, the value theory is treated as a normative feature which has to be utilized by a socialist society or a communist society in order to create adequate conditions of production. If you do that, then in effect what you're doing is you're taking the capitalist law of value and instantiated it, instantiating it within socialism. And Marx is always alert to that problem. I, I didn't mention last time at the beginning of uh, Marx had this critique of, of Proudhon and, and, and about his eternal justice. And, and basically, Marx's critique is he's, he's taken the commodity form as if somehow or other it can, it can be the basis 
of creating an alternative socialist society. Well, all you're going to do is actually create bourgeois relations by pursuing that objective. But I think the same thing does apply to this whole, whole way in which he has, Marx has set up, right the way to this point, this idea that value is itself dependent entirely upon the construction of a society which is dominated by commodity exchange. And that domination of commodity exchange only comes in a society which is capitalist. And that can only come in a society where labor power is a commodity and workers exist as bearers of this commodity called labor power, which can be purchased by capital in order to be able to produce more value than they themselves have. This then raises the problem on 274 of, okay, what establishes the value of labor power? And Marx covers this in one page. I'm on record as objecting to this. I think he should do a lot more on the question of wage determination and labor, value of labor power. But he, he covers it in one page. I mean, what does he say? The value of labor power is determined, as in the case of every other commodity, by the labor time necessary for the production and consequently also the reproduction of this specific article. Insofar as it has value, it represents no more than a definite quantity of the average social labor objectified in it. And he then goes on to say, uh, well, this entails, uh, in, in effect, adding up the value of all of those commodities which the laborer needs uh, to re reproduce himself or herself as a laborer. The labor time necessary for the production of labor power, he says, is the same as that necessary for the production of those means of subsistence. In other words, the value of labor power is the value of the means of subsistence necessary for the maintenance of its owner. And he then goes on to say, well, you know, the laborer has to be reproduced, which means the the reproduction of a definite quantity of human muscle, nerve, brain, these things have to be replaced. Since more is expended in certain circumstances, more must be received. If the owner of labor power works today, tomorrow he must again be able to repeat the same process in the same conditions as regards health and strength. His means of subsistence must therefore be sufficient to maintain him in his normal state. Again, What's a normal state? Don't know. As a working individual. His natural needs, such as food, clothing, fuel, and housing, vary according to the climatic and other physical peculiarities. Therefore, the value of labor power will be different uh, in Arctic regions from tropical regions. On the other hand, the number and extent of his so-called necessary requirements, as also the manner in which they are satisfied, are themselves products of history. Now this differentiates labor as a labor power as a commodity from all other forms of commodity production. And they depend, therefore, to a great extent on the level of civilization attained by a country. And you could add in here uh, the history of class struggle in a country. 
In particular, they depend on conditions in which, and consequently, on the habits and expectations with which the class of free workers has been formed. In contrast, therefore, with the case of other commodities, the determination of the value of labour power contains a historical and moral element. Okay, historical and moral element. Nevertheless, in a given country, at a given period, the average amount of the means of subsistence necessary for the worker is a known datum. End of discussion. Well, you know, this is a pretty <laughs> cavalier way to deal with this, uh, this issue. Um, clearly, when we say it has a historical and moral element, uh, you know, in, in Marx's era, and you know, there was a sort of sense of bourgeois reformism. Uh, many bourgeois elements looked at what was happening to the working class in the factories and found it appalling. And the factory inspectors were sent in to sort of clean things up, so there was a bourgeois reformist movement that said, you know, people shouldn't have to live like that. So there was class struggle going on, and the workers themselves were engaging in class struggle. So there's class struggle going on. The value of labor power is contingent on all of these you know, historical achievements, and, of course, it also varies a great deal depending upon the standard of living. But it is interesting that there are things that go on in our society that have some relevance to what Marx is talking about here. In the 1960s, for example, in this country, in the Lyndon Johnson Great Society period, there was a kind of, you know, after... You know, the other America came out, and, uh, and, and and the question of poverty became significant, and you get an anti anti poverty program. There came an attempt to define what is the poverty level. Uh, there was a famous statistician at the Labor Department, Molly Olshansky, who set up and said basically the poverty level is defined by all those the value of all of the commodities which. Laborers need to live, workers need to live, or people need to live at a decent standard of living. Uh, the poverty level right now in the country, this country, is something like twenty-five thousand seven hundred dollars for a family of four. That's what what would be considered. Below that, you're below the poverty line. Above that. So the declaration of the poverty line, it's not the same as Marx talking about the value of labor power, but you see the point. That there, and, and, and of course that poverty line has shifted. In 1960, you wouldn't put a cell phone into a necessity. It is now a necessity for workers to have a cell phone for all sorts of, all sorts of reasons. And so the, 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 the poverty level has been a moving datum and, and periodically it's revised in this country so that you can define how many people are in poverty and who are not in poverty and all the rest of it. And you can have policies around and certain uh, welfare programs are attached to the poverty level. Uh, maybe not directly to that level, but some, some factor of that level. 
So you have a bunch of public policies which, which, are, which are hovering around this idea that in this particular country, at this particular moment, in this particular time, this is what you would need to have a decent, you know, having, have a, 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 the possibility of reproducing yourself and your family and, and, and under conditions which are, quote, acceptable. And below that, there's unacceptable. So you will then have a discussion of how many people in this country are living below the poverty line. What is a, a living wage versus a minimum wage? All those kinds of things. So Marx is talking about the fact that, that in any given society at any given time, there's, there's going to be a debate about where this line lies. And it's going to vary a lot with, with geographical conditions, with standards of living. Uh, purchasing power parity, what is, uh, what is a necessity in this cultural situation, that uh, uh, certain items enter into the discussion of a poverty level in China which don't enter in here and vice versa, you know. So, so Marx has done a typical thing here, which is sort of race over everything and say, okay, it varies with climate, varies with how you define a normal state, uh, climatic, physical peculiarities, peculiarities, history of culture, cultural expectations, uh, degree of civilization, state of class struggle, etc., 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 and a historical and moral element. Put it all together, that's the value of labor power. Okay, I'm not going to talk about this anymore because I'm just going to assume it's fixed. And that's a good reason why he's going to say I assume it's fixed. Because he needs to define surplus value more clearly. And in order to define surplus value more clearly, he has to say, okay, here's the fixed datum. Because surplus value is going to be very sensitive to the value of labor power. And if the value of labor power increases, there's going to be less, saber, less surplus value. If it, if it decreases, more surplus value. So surplus value is going to be very sensitive to the value of labor power. So, but he's raced through it quickly here and said, OK, it's actually fixed. It has to include, however, he says, not only um, what's needed on a daily kind of basis, but you also need for labor, the value of labor power to have something to say about the cost of reproduction. And also to recognize the cost of special education or training. Cost of education. And the value of labor power, he says, can be resolved into the value of a definite quantity of the means of subsistence. It therefore varies with the value of the means of subsistence, with the quantity of labor time required to produce them. Um, the definite quantity of means of subsistence. and the value of them. One of the reasons why, again, contemporaneously, uh, that the value of labor power in this country is so low is because of Walmart. 
um, because actually of tariff policies that allowed cheap Chinese goods to come into the country. If you put a lot of tariffs on those cheap Chinese goods coming into the country, you hurt the Chinese, but at the same time, you're going to raise the cost of these goods to the working class in the country, and you're going to have to raise wages to cover those costs. So one of the reasons why free trade has been so important to you in recent times is because the value of the commodities needed to reproduce the labor power has been going down and down and down, particularly since the 1970s. So we have this very peculiar situation where the actual monetary uh, reward of working population has gone down and down and down, but the, the quantity of material goods they can command has gone up and up and up because they're cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So this is all, we, we're starting to see Marx building a framework where you can start to talk about some of those, those, those relations. It's very, very, very interesting. What does the organization of war, what has it done for the value of labor power in this country? And why is Walmart so important? And why does Walmart get all its goods from China? Well, not all of them, but a lot of its goods from China. And, and what happens when you start to mess around with tariffs like Trump is doing, and he doesn't recognize this, and kind of says, look, I'm helping you working class by putting these tariffs on China. And then they go to, they go to Walmart, and they find all the goods have gone out. Now, there are certain things about the consumption of labor power which become important. Um, the, the, the capitalist pays, there's a temporality here, the capitalist pays for all the raw materials and all the machinery and all these things, pays up front. The capitalist pays the worker after the job is done, at the end of the week, not the beginning. And, and there's a very good reason for this. If you paid the worker on the first day, they just disappear. You wait to the end of the week or the end of the month, and you pay them at the end of the week, end of the month. It means, in effect, workers are in a position where they advance the, the value of their productive capacity to the, to the, to the capitalist and get paid afterwards. In a sense, there's a debtor-lender thing there. Non-payment of wages is a, 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 a real serious problem. I mean, it's, it's, it's very renowned in China. All the time this is happening. That people work on a project and they work on it for six months and then they don't get paid. But there was a study of, 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 of working populations in Chicago which showed that non-payment of wages was a very serious problem. And, and uh, you know, a large percent of the working population had at some point or other experienced the problem of non-payment of wages after the work has been done. So Marx uh, is pointing out that there is this peculiarly lopsided relation uh, and then this leads him to the conclusion 
the use value uh, which the capitalist gets in exchange manifests itself only in the actual utilization, the process of consumption of the labor power. The money owner buys everything necessary to this process, such as raw material in the market, and pays the full price for it. The process of the consumption of labor power is at the same time the production process of commodities and of surplus value. The consumption of labor power is completed, as in the case of every other commodity, outside the market or the sphere of circulation. It's within production. Let us therefore, in company with the owner of money and the owner of labor power, leave this noisy sphere where everything takes place on the surface and in full view of everyone, and follow them into the hidden abode of production on whose threshold there hangs the notice, no admittance except on business. That is, we've got to go inside the factory to see what happens inside there. Here we shall see, when we get inside, not only how capital produces, but how capital is itself produced. The secret of profit-making must at last be laid bare. And here comes the rather famous attack upon, if you like, the neoliberal foundations of the world, but liberal foundations, actually, the sphere of circulation or commodity exchange, within whose boundaries the sale and purchase of labor power goes on, is in fact a very Eden of the innate rights of man. It is the exclusive realm of freedom, equality, property, and Bentham, which is what George Bush tried to deliver to Iraq. Freedom, because both buyer and seller of a commodity, let us say of labor power, are determined only by their own free will. They contract as free persons who are equal before the law. Their contract is the final result in which their joint will finds a common legal expression, the rule of law. Equality, because each enters into relation with the other, as with the simple owner of commodities, and they exchange equivalent for equivalent. Property, because each disposes only of what is his own. And Bentham, because each looks only to his own advantage. The only force bringing them together and putting them into relation with each other is the selfishness, the gain, and the private interest of each. Each pays heed to himself only, and no one worries about the others. And precisely for that reason, either in accordance with the pre-established harmony of things, or under the auspices of an omniscient providence, they all work together to their mutual advantage for the common weal and in the common interest. When we leave this sphere of simple circulation or the exchange of commodities, which provides the free trader vulgaris with his views, his concepts, and the standard by which he judges the society of capital and wage labor, a certain change takes place, or so it appears, in the physiognomy of our dramatis personae. He who was previously the money owner now strides out in front as a capitalist. The possessor of labor power follows as his worker. The one smirks self-importantly and is intent on business. The other is timid and holds back, like someone who has brought his own hide to market and now has nothing else to expect but a tanning. We're now going from the sphere of circulation, now going from the sphere of the market, 
into the point of production. And there we will have uncovered the secret of profit making. We shall see in that realm how capital is produces, but how capital is itself produced. So what Marx has done here then is to bring us to this point in the story where we've now got to leave, we go back to the diagram, the buying of labor power, the buying of commodities, the conversion of money into capital, and it is now going to be put together in a production process, and we're going to go into the factory. Notice that the value theory is still with us, but it's now completed in terms of its connectivity to exchange in the market. Exchange in the market has become commodity exchange in general. It's become generalized, it's become universalized, it's become much more sophisticated with means of payment and all the rest of it. It's disciplined, if you like, the money form and relied upon the money form. But we've now got ourselves to the point of how the value theory is going to regulate those relations which are operating within the factory as opposed to the value theory which is being produced by these activities uh, within the market. These three chapters, like I said, are not too difficult in a, in a way to follow, but they have some rather deep implications, and I think it's important always to spend a little time thinking about what these ideas might mean. The value of labor power is, of course, a crucial datum point. Marx is basically going to say from here on, it's fixed. I'm not going to... Well, no, he won't say it's fixed all the way, but it's, it's, it's fixed uh, conceptually. And that is that. Is that. Uh, you make assumptions, it's okay to make assumptions, but it's important always to remember uh, what those assumptions are doing. And I think it's interesting how the perfection of the market is being set up here how in a perfect market, of course, the value of labor power will be fixed in a certain, in a certain kind of way. So we can start to discuss any points you want to make uh, from here on. Since, uh, oh, before I do, uh, let me say that uh, for next week, we want to deal with uh, the next uh, three chapters. Uh, chapter 7, 8, and 9. And then we may get a little bit into chapter 10, which is the working day. In fact, I would like to get into just the beginning part of chapter 10. Okay, okay so we have a, uh, a question from Stephen in Canada. 
he says, can you comment on the value of labor power as it relates to specialized skill sets and how that relates to the reduction of complex to simple labor, i.e. complex labor of a technical or scientific nature as a multiple of simple labor? In particular, I'm interested in how that's compensated in a neoliberal labor regime where the individual is responsible for acquiring and paying for training, adjusting to the needs of capital, and hopefully being reimbursed after the fact. Thanks. Well, as you remember, uh, Marx takes uh, skilled labor as a multiple of uh, simple labor. And there's a lot of questions to be to be made about that. But we've now got a situation in which the value of labor power depends, and this is why, again, Marx is shortchanging, I think, the argument. It depends on the cost of social reproduction of the laborer. Now, the sphere of social re reproduction is not analyzed very much in here. And in that social reproduction, we're talking about the reproduction and he does, at a certain point, say, well, allowance has to be made for the cost of education uh, and, 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 and gaining of skills. But as with the, the first instance where he's talking about you know, quali different qualities of labor power, uh, he doesn't go into this in any, in any great detail. This is something that obviously needs to be taken up. Uh, because uh, the costs of uh, social reproduction uh, of different, different uh, involving education, and skills, and all the rest of it, those costs of reproduction should uh, be incorporated into the value of labor power. And so you would end up with a, a, some sorts of stratification in the value of labor power depending upon those costs and how those costs are spread across the working population. Now, exactly how that works is going to be, a, it seems to me, is, a, is going to have to be a subject to uh, separate studies. And there are articles about, uh, from, you know, in labor history about uh, uh, skilled laborers and, 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 and the like. But Marx does not, at this point, take this issue very far at all. And I think that is one of the issues that needs to be expanded. It's one of those, you know, as, I as I mentioned, you know, there's a, there's a sort of arrow-like uh, construction to this argument, which is moving very fast, but there are lots of things that, and that, that open door into the question of, all right, how do you, how do you deal with uh, costs of uh, social reproduction? Um, one of the issues here, however, uh, if we're talking about the, the contemporary order, is that one of the one of one of the kind of big shifts that occurred with neoliberalism uh, was the idea that the social co the social costs of uh, reproduction should be borne by the laborer, uh, and if necessarily through college education, indebtedness, and all the rest of it. Uh, and the argument around that, uh, which uh, the neoliberals effectively made, was that we have to mobilize the self-interest of people to get their own education. 
and then they have to be motivated uh, with, after you get the education to, to pay it back and to return to society because there was no question that there were certain kinds of biases that existed in, a, in free educational systems. I came through a free educational system in, in Britain uh, but it was clear after a while that working the working class was not sending many people to college. That essentially the free education was something that was being used by the middle class, not the working class. And the middle class were benefiting it and were ending up with higher salaries because of the, by virtue of their education. And so the argument was, well, in that case they should pay back uh, what they have been freely given in some way, so that then led into the whole the Labour Party uh, actually imposing uh, tuitions upon uh, higher education students. The difficulty, uh, of course, then, is what is the nature of the skills that are imparted? And one of the difficulties that we've seen over the last 30 or 40 years is that, is that skills become are rendered redundant very fast by technological change. Uh, that uh, what was a required skill at a certain point in time uh, becomes redundant at another point in time. And you go from a world which was the Fordist world where people were effectively drawn into the divisions of labor and into functional positionalities within the working class and it was fairly stable uh, to a situation where it becomes very precarious. A lot of work becomes subcontracted, everything goes so, so and, and, and a skill that looked like it was an important skill uh, becomes uh, less so. One of the themes, however, which is I think important to do is to recognize that one of, one of the powers that workers had in the time Marx was writing was a monopolization of certain skills and had a certain monopoly power of that skill. And therefore, by virtue of that monopoly power, they could command higher wages. Uh, one of the things that's happened with the capitalist support of public education is to destroy monopolizable skills. And it's very interesting uh, that, uh, for instance, uh, the skill of a computer programmer uh, once upon a time was a monopolizable skill and uh, could command a premium in terms of the labor market, but within you know, 10 or 15 years. Chris, how many years before it became 10 a penny and, and you could you know, find people all over the place who had those skills and therefore it became non-monopolizable anymore and people lost their advantage. And so the, 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 the capitalist class has a, a particular definition of skill and its definition of, of skill is, that it is something that is, you know, has a certain accomplishment to it but which is not monopolizable. There's a real, real kind of campaign which goes on in part of the capitalist class. And that, that, that means that there's a certain flattening of 
skill structures within within different uh, in industries, uh, and uh, again, there's a history to this, and I think that what, what Marx talks about here about the whole history of this, which uh, needs to be looked at. I think we you know we have to write that labor, labor history. I think uh, concretely in terms of what has exactly happened in terms of monopolizable skills, reproducible skills. Uh, costs of uh, training of those skills, and and the attempt, uh, in many instances, to to engage in in reskilling exercises, which are actually rather uh, difficult to accomplish. I recall talking to people who've been, you know, Sheffield lost most of its steel jobs in three years. They lost about sixty thousand jobs in three years, and there was a big retraining exercise in which there was an attempt to retrain steel workers so they could become, uh, I don't know, computer programmers or shop assistants. And it didn't go down very well. Uh, in fact, it was uh, pretty much of a disaster to, to try to retrain people who are 50 or 60 years old. Uh, in re and, and so governments come up with retraining exercises, uh, retraining policies of various kinds. Uh, which often take people from, say, unionized positions of certain kinds of skilled work and, and then turn them into non-unionized uh, workers with uh, fairly routine uh, kinds of, kinds of not, very meaningful, not very meaningful jobs. So what happens in the job market is a big, uh, is a big history that needs to be sort of taken. You know, it's, it's not as if Marx is going to cover that for you, but I think the questions get posed out of Marx, and then they need to be answered on their own terms. No, just a note regarding social reproduction, because there is also the the women's labor in that, and uh, bearing the babies that are going to grow up, and washing and cooking for those who will become also those kind of productive force will yeah. that he didn't account for but feminists from the 60s 70s um, spoke about it a lot i just was wanting to mention it maybe something um in relation to that you know in relation to reading capital yeah mm. it does it does come up uh, a couple of times it doesn't come up uh, here in this in this passage uh, but it does come up. But again, it's one of those things that Marx mentions but doesn't elaborate upon. Uh, and uh, in the chapter, which comes much later on machinery and modern industry, he talks uh, about uh, the, the, the reconfiguration of family life uh, and family relations and gender relations around uh, the new structures of employment which are, which are being created. But that comes much later. Uh, and one of the reasons in that, that diagram that I put up on the circulation of capital, um, that the whole sphere of social reproduction is absolutely critical, is that what Marx could have done with this section, for example, is to talk far more about uh, the, the, the work of social reproduction uh, and how much that uh, work was contributing to uh, questions of the value of labor power, and that, that could have been far better handled. And I think uh, most people reading this, I think particularly the feminists in the 1970s and, 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 and 80s, uh, 
did a lot of work on, on that question. Um, again, I, I always want to emphasize that uh, Marx's capital is not a Bible that has uh, the totality all taken care of. It's a basis upon which uh, to construct explorations. Uh, and the key findings uh, are the ones that uh, I would want to uh, em emphasize on, on, on the readings uh, while making clear that there are all of these other issues that need uh, to be blend, blended in into a, a, a real understanding of the totality of what a capitalist mode of production uh, is about. Hi, David. Um, I wanted to come back to that point of, of uh, this critical definition that you said capital is value in motion. And I think it uh, would be really interesting to hear you talk about it more because you said also that like conventional economics or bourgeois economics always relates to capital as a thing. And you mentioned commodity and money. And uh, just to explore the implications of that, because it seems to me it comes very close to this kind of liminality between values and value in the sense that values are always unquantifiable and something immaterial like almost moral or ethical and value is always associated with something quantifiable. And so I don't know if that's my way of trying to understand, but what, what is your way of sort of, is it lastly then this kind of whole process of capitalist mode of production is also um, exaltation of a certain values based on value? I mean, it's, it seems like an aporetic uh, or a, in, so if it's intangible, if it's not a thing, this value, what is it? Is it just the circulation or, you know, I mean. No, 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 it's, uh, it's a social relation uh, which you can't measure directly, has no direct measure. It is uh, like any social relation, it's, it has objective consequences, but you can't uh, quantify it. Uh, and given that, that situation, value cannot exist without an expression, and the expression is, of course, the monetary form. And for Marx, he is not interested in creating his theory of value. What he is interested in doing is trying to construct what it is that is being valued through processes of commodity exchange and ultimately through the circulation of capital. So when I say that the value theory for Marx is that which capital defines, and it is therefore the value system which has to be overthrown if we want to construct a society based on what you might call ethical values or ecological values or socialist values or, or whatever. And I think this is one of the uh, mistakes that many people engage in when reading Marx to think that Marx is actually looking upon the value theory as it is constructed through practices 
and those, those practices are the practices of commodity exchange and ultimately the practices of, of capital circulation. The, the, the error is to see the value which is constructed that way as some norm to which we should aspire. What Marx will say much later in Capital, in chapter much later, is to produce value under capital is a misfortune. Because it means you are producing value for somebody else. And, and it is not a, a norm to which we should aspire. It is a practical form of evaluation of social labor which needs to be overthrown in the construction of a socialist alternative. And that therefore there should be a, a, an alternative socialist form of value. And how that should, could be constructed is, is, is important. And of course this is one of the arguments that many utopian socialists were making in the uh, 19th century, 18th, 19th century. Which is, well, there's an alternative... Uh, way we can, we can value. And it's not that social labor disappears, because social labor will undoubtedly continue, but it will be social labor to which they will attach a different form of valuation. As it is, simply, um, this is where Marx is talking about an, uh, the objective character of the value theory, which is it is something which is objectively constructed through practices of exchange, of commodity exchange, and commodity production and exchange, in which labor power is a commodity. So that is where Marx is at on the value theory. And it's not, I mean, he's, he's, he's critical of the value theory. And he's extremely critical of it. Because it's what, but, but at the same time, he's, he's saying, my job as a scientist is not to tell you what value should be, or, or that, it's, gonna, it's, it's to tell you how capital values people and things. And, and people get it. I mean, how are you valued? Who's doing the valuation? What does it feel like? You realize there's something wrong with the value theory <laughs> or capitalist mode of valuing things. I mean, how does capital value environmental conditions? It doesn't care. It doesn't care. It's not sensitive at all. It just says it's there to be used and we're going to use it. And it's a free gifts of nature, and we're going to treat it as free gifts of nature. So there's no value put on it at all. And in a sense, one of the, of the tragedies of, say, planning in the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union took the capitalist value theory and, and actually instantiated it in society. It, too, did not care about environmental values. It actually dismissed it all as petty bourgeois romanticism, as did Mao, which was a disaster because they ended up with a you know huge famine and you know. So so again, and this also 
goes back to, to the question of why is it that women's labor and social reproduction is not, is not valued. Capital doesn't care. Basically says, okay, I'll give you a wage, and if you're in a kind of one of those households where only one person works, then uh, fine, we give you a wage which will cover the cost of social reproduction, and then you get on with it. It's your business. Uh, then what happens, of course, is sometimes uh, women, you know, whole families start to be employed, but there's an interesting feature. When women entered the workforce, what happened to individual wages? Household wages remained s stable while the individual wages went down because basically instead of one person working in the household and you had to pay the whole cost of social reproduction, you had two people working in. So, okay, you can reduce the individual wages. Capital loved it. And in fact, a lot of you know, bringing women into the workforce had a lot to do with lowering the individual wage while the household wage remained constant. That's what you did. And that's what capitalist politics was. So there's no, so, so the valuation which is going on within a capitalist mode of production is to Marx a very important question. And he's trying to elucidate what capital's value theory is. And it's capital's value theory he's trying to reflect back to us by studying commodity exchange, valuation of labor power and all those kinds of things. That's what, he's, that's what he's trying to do. The alternative values, which many people would like to see us follow, are, are not those which are shared by capital. So part of the battle over value theory is why, why are we accepting the value theory of capital? Why aren't we uh, imposing alternative value theories? And that, of course, sometimes even bourgeois society itself gets kind of uh, tied up with. I mean, and it's, it's interesting to see how, you know, what the bourgeoisie does is to kind of actually end up with two value theories. They have a value theory whereby they gain their wealth, and then they turn around and start to be, you know, philanthropists and, and, say the, and, and try to demonstrate how committed they are to human values by... By, by spreading some of the wealth around, uh, you know, on you know, healthcare and, and all this kind of stuff. The real question is, what was the value theory that allowed them to accumulate the wealth in the first place? And, 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 and again, it's you know, how the capitalist value theory and valuation structures work, which it seems to me Marx is really out to try to reveal to us. I mean, that's what he's trying to do here, which accounts for some of the 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 the, uh, the shortcuts he makes. I mean, he's extremely cavalier in that. Value of labor power. You would have thought he would spend pages on this. He does it in a page. And 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 he does come back to it a couple of times, but not very well. Not very well. But but you know, but he's got other things on his mind. These other places he wants to take you. And they are very important places to take you.
Um, I'd like it if you could discuss um, more deeply the idea of a free, somebody of a worker selling his, going into the market and selling himself his labor for free, and how that relates to the world in which we have now. Um, and and where, yeah, back then where people they couldn't but work because of their desperation to stay alive. They had no choices in this regard. Yeah, they weren't slaves, but I, I have trouble with the idea of the freedom aspect in this regard. Well, they're, they're free in the sense that they, uh, they have, uh, uh, you know, they, they can go to this employer or that employer, they can leave employment, they can go back. I mean, they're, they're, Marx is arguing that free labor is free in that sense, that it's free, it's free to contract with whoever. Uh, but it's unfree in the sense that it has been freed of any capacity to actually realize the value of its own labor uh, and, and its own labor power. So it's been freed, I mean, Marx is being ironic about the word freedom here. He said they've been freed from any command over the means of production. Now, there's another sense in which the free gifts of nature and of, of human nature are part and parcel of this. When Marx talks about, well, there's a long history of cultural history of productivity amongst workers, which capital is going to take up for free. In other words, uh, they had been produced somehow or other through you know social forms of social reproduction for which capital didn't pay for. And to whatever degree it can, capital will shift the costs of reproduction onto the workers themselves and say that you're liable for your own future. And that's, of course, what neoliberal politics of the labor market has been very much about. So the notion of freedom is... Uh, in in Marx is, uh, is is I mean basically basically he's going to argue that the idea that free markets and free trade and private property and the rule of law can be the foundation for a free society is is a complete complete scam. Uh, that in fact, uh, that what he's going to show in capital is that this this creates a society in which capital gets wealthier and wealthier and wealthier, and the workers get more and more impoverished, unless unless modes of intervention uh, arise, either because the bourgeoisie has to do it, or because the workers themselves become so strong in their form of organisation. So, the question of freedom, I mean. Marx is actually has an ambition of uh, individual liberty and freedom, which is just as strong as anything which is put forward by uh, Enlightenment thinkers. It's just he's saying you can't get it by that mechanism which you've defined, which is private property, rule of law, free markets and free trade. It's going to have to be done collectively through associated labor, which is what he talked about earlier uh, in the chap on the section on fetishism. Um, so, 
currently in um, like a lot of uh, left wing circles, there's the uh, people talk a lot about the idea of the worker owned cooperative, where essentially you're merging the laborer and the capitalist in one. And so then the surplus uh, labor is then uh, kept by the laborers. Um, but it seems like in, in the formulation, uh, Marx's formulation here, that as long as you're uh, working in this uh, system where you uh, have a market exchange system, um, there's still going to be uh, levels of exploitation and that you can't really um, escape that with uh, a solution that exists within that system. So I'm wondering if like, at least in Marx's formulation, whether worker-owned cooperatives are maybe a fool's errand or um, at least... Uh, well, he, he does take this up. Uh, you know, he was very impressed with... Uh, uh, the sort of Robert Owen kind of uh, stuff that was going on. And uh, he, he tends to sort of look on these as transi transitional forms, but the trouble with worker cooperatives is if they don't become, as it were, general to the whole system, if they're embedded within a capitalist system, it ends up to creating a situation of self-exploitation. And if you look at uh, sort of some of the problems that are emerged in, say, uh, the recuperated factories in Argentina and so on, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, because you're in competition, <laughs> if you if you're in if you're in competition, if you're facing the coercive laws of competition, uh, then the cooperative has to operate in certain kinds of ways, which uh, it can even become repressive. Uh, so. I think the argument here would be that as a beginning point, worker cooperatives are a very good idea, but if they remain a beginning point, they will then actually be reabsorbed within the dominant praxis and the system and uh, end up uh, uh, either engaging in those dominant practices. For instance, Mondragon, just to take an example, has, has managed to survive in some degree by subcontracting out various aspects of its labor process to firms which, which, which are, have a capitalist form of organization. So, you know, this is a, this is a, the, 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 the difficulty. So I, I, I mean, I personally would say, well, I'm in favor of worker cooperatives, but only as a transitional form. And the big question is, how do we then transform the whole, the whole structure? Uh, and uh, what does that mean in terms of, for instance, what you know, finance capital does, worker cooperatives at some point or other may find they have to borrow. And as soon as they're in the credit relationship, uh, they're going to be working for the bank, not, 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 not for themselves. So there, there, there are, you know, there are those sorts of problems. Hey. So this question isn't immediately related to capital, but more in the context of recent accusations against leftist figures, particularly Congressman, Congresswoman Ilan Omar of anti-Semitism. I just want to clear up. Um, we mentioned earlier, I think it was in chapter five, some potential controversy of anti-Semitism. I'm wondering how these accusations against Marx fare in a context uh, not only of this work, but in his earlier works, particularly on the Jewish question, which I think was written sometime forties. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, uh, well, I mean, uh, um, I, have, I have my own views on some of this, and I haven't really sort of studied every aspect of what Marx is doing, because of this long hi history of uh, Marxism uh, and anti-Semitism, and we're seeing that in the Labour Party in Britain, Britain right now, which has become... I, in my in my view, I, I think very badly handled, needless controversy. But uh, of course, what you what, what in that case, uh, it was not helped by the fact that the right wing press has spent a lot of time sort of stoking the kind of supposed anti-Semitism of Corbyn because he was pro-Palestinian uh, and took a pro-Palestinian position on certain things. Um, so there's a you know. This is a, this is a, I don't think we have time to, <laughs> to discuss that whole, whole thing, whole thing here, but, but I think that it is, uh, uh, again, part of the complication is, uh, does lie in Marx's texts, because that passage, for example, we read, um, does sound pretty, you know, anti-Semitic, but, uh, again, if you put yourself back in the second, the, the, the situation at that at that time, and the way in which uh, uh, the Jews were essentially seen uh, in, in particularly in, in in France, actually uh, at that at that time, you will find it a, a rather a rather complicated question. So I'm I'm not going to really get involved too much in 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 that. Professor Harvey, we have a few more questions. Would you like to yeah. take them, or sure. would you? Yeah. Okay. Do you mind telling the class the readings for next week, in case? Uh, yeah, the next three chapters, uh, which take and, and begin on chapter ten. Do try and get into the first few pages of chapter ten, which is on the working day. I had a question on the uh, free gifts of nature. Um, does it relate to ecosystem services and is it not valued or is it hard to valorize because you can't commodify it or is it because you can't extract surplus labor from it or is it something else? Well, capital prefers to treat nature as, a, as just a free gift that it will use however it wants for nothing. Um, of course, there is some labor involved in the extraction so it's not as if extractivism doesn't have also have its, its its labor input and all the rest of it, but we also have a, a another problem with it, which is that uh, uh, landlords and own property owners can in fact uh, command a rent uh, for permission for permitting capital to use whatever's in nature and so there's a rental extraction possibility and at a certain point uh, rent becomes uh, a an attractive sphere of investment so people will invest in, in commodity futures and will invest in uh, land uh, and resources uh, 
in order to extract rents, but we've not got to the theory of rent right now in volume one of Capital, doesn't deal with the theory of rent at all. What it does do is to sort of say, well, okay, there's a metabolic relation with, to nature, which is foundational. Uh, how Capital uses that uh, is to say, is, is essentially given if there's no landlord class extracting from it, then Capital will use it as a free gift uh, in terms of uh, the natural productivity that uh, you put a seed in the land and you, you get a crop from it and the land does the work and therefore there's very little labor involved in, or can be very little labor involved in, 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 in that and, and, and the free gift is that there's a productivity which is, which is given by nature as opposed to given by uh, the technology which uh, human beings have, have, have constructed. Hi, Dr. Harvey. Um, you mentioned the circulation of interest-bearing capital. Um, and I just wanted to hear about that rela the relation between that and labor and class struggle and how the increased circulation of interest-bearing capital plays into that. Well, you have to come back in three years' time when I do volume three. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, circulation of interest-bearing capital. I mean, I, I mentioned uh, earlier that interest-bearing capital preceded uh, the industrial form of capital, but then interest-bearing capital, in, in the way Marx sets it up, gets disciplined to the requirements of industrial capital. Uh, one would argue right now that the thing has been reversed and that the uh, interest-bearing capital now commands uh, industrial capital. Uh, and uh, I would certainly make that, that, that uh, argument. But the rules of, of, of circulation of interest-bearing capital are rather different uh, than the circulation of the capital as, uh, as we're going to look at it from the volume one standpoint. Um, and uh, the point here is that uh, the, the, the instruments through which interest-bearing capital circulates and the impulse uh, to it is just simply to earn interest rather than to make surplus value. Interest is that portion of surplus value which bankers can, uh, can appropriate. Um, and uh, uh, interest, uh, therefore, is something which is potentially parasitic uh, upon the actual production of value, except that it, is, it cannot be purely parasitic because there are many aspects of a complicated system, for instance, the circulation of, uh, of, uh, uh, of fixed capital, of, uh, which, which require interest-bearing capital to be able to, to work. So that the circulation of interest-bearing capital does have a very important role to play in the stabilization of, uh, uh, of capital accumulation, and that's largely the topic of uh, Volume 2. Uh, but then the question of appropriation of, uh, of part of the surplus value by interest-bearing capital is the, is the, the topic of Volume 3 uh, of capital. And uh, if, if you want to understand the totality of the system, then you have to think about the relationships between the three volumes of capital, which at this point we're not really able to do since uh, it's getting late and uh, we won't 
uh, have until tomorrow morning just to, to get onto the matter. Okay, let's leave it there. So thank you very much. <laughs>